Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. I have a very special guest for today's show. His name is Brian Regal. He comes to us from New Jersey and has written a really interesting book. I really enjoyed reading it. It's really about Americana and kind of uh, kind of paranormal things, but really about American history from the past to the present. Title of the book is The Secret History of the Jersey Devil, How Quakers, Hucksters, and Benjamin Franklin Created a Monster. And Mr. Regal uh, wrote it with another author. His name is Frank J. Esposito. It was published in 2018. And Brian Regal, Dr. Regal, uh, teaches at Kane University in New Jersey, so he definitely has an imprint there on that state. Uh, this is not his first book. He's written a book titled Human Evolution. Also, Henry Fairfield Osborne, Race and the Search for the Origins of Man. Another is Human Evolution, A Guide to the Debates, as well as Searching for Sasquatch, Crackpots, Eggheads, and Cryptozoology. That looks really interesting, too. Um, he also has uh, had some uh, career highlights. One is a two-year fellowship at the Mary Baker, Baker Eddy Papers Project from 1999 to 2001. But again, we're going to talk about this book. The title, again, is The Secret History of the Jersey Devil. So, Dr. Regal, are you there? Yes, here I am. Awesome. Well, thanks, thanks for having for, me on. Great. Well, thanks for the interview. Congratulations on the book. For people who may not have heard your name, can you talk kind of what led you to write this really fascinating book, The Secret History of the Jersey Devil? Well, I'm a historian of uh, science, technology, and medicine. And several years ago, uh, a colleague of mine, Dr. Frank J. Esposito, here at Kane University, we're both uh, in the Department of History. Uh, he's a Native American scholar and a historian of New Jersey. And we were talking one day in the lunchroom in the cafeteria, and we both sort of at the same time said, you know, we should do something together. And then we both blurted out, let's do something on the Jersey Devil. Uh, and we had come to that decision because, you know, there's a lot of material on the Jersey Devil legend out there. There are books and articles and websites, and there are groups of people who go out looking for this in the Pine Barrens. Uh, and the, the problem we had with this material is that it was mostly... Uh, intensely uninformed, uh, based on virtually no evidence, no facts, a lot of regurgitating the same tired old stories over and over and over again, uh, without any attempt to find out the reality, the facts, you know, the data behind all this. And uh, both uh, Dr. Esposito and myself are trained academic historians. And we said, but we, you know, we did what historians call historiography. We went out and looked at all the works we could find written about the Jersey Devil. And we did a quick analysis of them. Uh, and we decided that they were all lacking, uh, in large part because the vast majority of people who were writing about the Jersey Devil were not trained researchers, not trained historians. This is an issue that kind of plagues cryptozoology, mystery hunting, you know, all, all those areas that are very popular. Uh, people get into these filled with a lot of passion uh, and energy, but no training or very little training. And so what uh, Dr. Esposito and I did was we decided, well, if we're going to do this, let's do it the way historians do this job. 
And so we thought that was a good idea. And so we did what historians do. We launched into the primary sources. We went digging through archives and libraries uh, and museums from Boston to Washington, D.C., looking for every scrap of material we could find on the subject, even tangentially related things. Because another problem that sort of mystery hunters have is a kind of hyper-focused way of looking at whatever mystery uh, they're, they're trying to examine. Uh, and, you know, the, the old, they don't see the forest for the trees sort of thing because they get up so close to it that they don't notice uh, collateral material just off to the left or the right. And so that's what historians are trained to do. We don't just look at, uh, you know, the Bermuda Triangle and we just Google Bermuda Triangle and whatever comes up. Well, I guess that's all there is. Right. Uh, but I would probably, sorry to interrupt, but I would probably say that all of the, the ghost hunters or the people hunting for the Jer Jersey Devil, most of them do not know the history or the origins of the legend or how it right, became. Because, <clears throat> because they're not trained in how to look at this and they're reading work that's been done by people who were not trained to do this. And so that was the approach we took, uh, and, which is, which is not particularly unusual for us. That's what we do. That's what we were, we learned to do in graduate school. That's how we write all of our books, uh, and our articles. And that's how we lecture about this material, primary source, fact-based research. And we follow it wherever it goes. Uh, if it goes off to the left, it goes off to the left. It goes, if it goes off to the right, it goes off to the right. You know, we don't work with a preconceived notion. Uh, Frank and I had a couple of ideas when we started this thing. We thought, well, <clears throat> maybe this is a story that began uh, as a kind of multi-retelling of what we call a monstrous birth during the colonial period. For a long time, people, when, when, a, when a child or an animal was born deformed, today we understand, <clears throat> excuse me, today we understand that birth defects are genetic, there's something in the DNA, they're they can be environmental. There's a number of, you know, many reasons why uh, both humans and animals are occasionally born deformed. But back uh, up through the colonial period, uh, even until the 19th century, uh, people didn't really understand that. And so the way they had of explaining you know, a two-headed baby or uh, you know, a, a, a five-legged goat was to look for supernatural explanations uh, or theological explanations. And they always blamed the mother. It's always the mother's fault. It's never the father's fault. Uh, and this is really a glaring thing in the Jersey Devil story because one of the one of the most one of the central characters to the thing is somebody called Mother Leeds. She's the one who gives birth to the to the uh, the, the Jersey Devil. Uh, but anyway, so that was what we decided to do. So we began going through, and and rather quickly, we discovered that there was a, a goodly amount of historical material out there. Uh, and again, this idea of looking off to the side, not always just focusing on the one bit, we found a lot of ancillary material, which led us to uh, information about this story <clears throat> that no one had ever uh, thought of before. 
uh, or, or gone after because, again, getting back to this notion of sort of following the trail, but not looking off to the left or right, just kind of hyper-focused on the trail and not missing the creature standing right next to you because you're not looking for it and you don't even know it's there because you didn't bother to look up. Right. So then where does this whole, the gestation, the very beginning of the Jersey Devil, where does it start and who does it start with? Not just this woman, but it was within the context of this kind of supernatural theological worldview, correct? Uh, yeah, but it starts off as something non-monstery at all. Uh, really, what we have here is not the story of one monster. It's the story of two. There's the Leeds Devil, which is the original incarnation. And then the Jersey Devil actually doesn't come along until the early 20th century. Uh, so for most of the history of this story that we wrote... Uh, the, the people involved would never recognize the name Jersey Devil. They would have understood the term Leeds Devil because this is all about the Leeds family uh, and particular, particularly the, oh, the protagonist of the story uh, is a guy named Daniel Leeds, who is an English Quaker who comes to what is then West Jersey uh, in the 1680s. Uh, he and his brother and his father, his mother doesn't come along because she dies of smallpox and is buried back in London. Uh, and they decide to come to this land called Jersey um, to start start anew, to create new lives, to, you know, conquer worlds, all that kind of stereotypical immigrant story thing. And they settle in a town called Burlington on the Delaware River, which is still there, still a thriving city, uh, kind of north of Philadelphia. Uh, and at the time, Philadelphia doesn't actually exist yet. Burlington is actually older than Philadelphia. Uh, and so Philadelphia begins to, to grow uh, during Daniel Leeds' lifetime. And ironically, the story, the Jersey Devil, ends in Philadelphia. So it's, uh, you know, it, it starts in this one place and then winds up in this other one. Uh, but Daniel Leeds is a really interesting guy. The, the early part of the book is in large part a biography of Daniel Leeds and the Leeds family. And he has this, because he was a Quaker, he couldn't go to college in England. Because at the time, you, could, you couldn't go to university, uh, you couldn't go to Oxford, you couldn't go to Cambridge, unless you were an Anglican. Uh, and in order to do that, you had to sign basically a contract uh, when you entered college that said you will believe in the Anglican religion and you will follow the Ang Anglican rules and laws and all these things. And Quakers refused to do that. They said, no, we're not going to follow Anglicanism, the, also called the Church of England. Uh, remember, this is right after the Protestant Reformation and England has bounced back and forth between Protestant and Catholic. And in, one of the offshoots of all this uh, are the Puritans, uh, the Anglicans, uh, and the Quakers. Now, there are a bunch of others, but the, the, those are the ones that are of interest for our story here. And the Quakers said, you know, we're not going to do this. It's against our religion. Uh, and so there was a lot of anti-Quaker sentiment in England, uh, anti-Quaker laws, uh, rules that said, you know, more than a couple of Quakers couldn't congregate on a street corner or they'd be arrested. Daniel Leeds' father uh, was arrested and held in the Tower of London, uh, basically for little more than being a Quaker. 
And so actually they, they didn't call themselves Quakers at first. They called themselves the Society of Friends. Uh, and they still do that. The term Quaker was used by sort of enemies of their religion because within uh, the friends sort of theology and practice and ritual, they did a lot of dancing. And they would tell people that the reason we dance is because we are filled with the spirit of the Lord. And so people who didn't like them to make fun of them would say, look at the, the friends there. They're quaking all over the place. Uh, and so they started referring to them as Quakers and in a way that is not particularly unusual when a group is, uh, when a derogatory term is used for a group, that group will, will embrace that term. Even though it's meant as an insult, they embrace it and they use it themselves. And that way the insult is taken out of it. You can't uh, make fun of us by calling us something we call ourselves. Right. So that's why they come to be known as the Quakers. And they were very unhierarchical, right? So I think that yes. they, that was the thing that the Anglicans didn't like, and even the Puritans didn't like. Yeah, the Puritans so, hated them as well. Right. So part of the reason that the Quakers go to New Jersey or West Jersey is because there have been anti-Quaker pogroms led by the Puritans, not just in England but in Boston too. So that sort of hate, religious hatred, comes over here. One of the things that that Frank and I really tried to uh, bring out in this book was that the story of the Jersey Devil isn't just some sort of mildly interesting, you know, uh, uh, urban myth, colonial yeah, well, myth, mon monster that. story from the from the you know the the pine lands from the hinterlands. Uh, this is a story that still has quite a bit of relevance for us today. Uh, the importation of religious hatred, hatred of immigrants, hatred of outspoken women. Uh, you know, the, the, a lot uh, there's there's there is political duplicity in this story that makes the stuff that goes on today seem almost tame by comparison. Uh, you know, we we like to think of of sort of bare knuckle, uh, no holes barred political chicanery as somehow a product of the late 20th and early 21st century, which is completely incorrect. This goes all the way back to the earliest days of European colonization and settlement of North America. Um, and so Daniel Leeds wants to bring, he's not formally educated, but he's an autodidact, which most Quakers are. He reads, he's self-taught. He reads science. He reads theology. He reads history. Uh, he reads, you know, he just, he's just chewing and chewing on books and reading because uh, this is a Quaker tradition, because they couldn't go to traditional university. They created these kind of private, uh, they wouldn't have used this term, but like a salon of local people who would read books and then they would get together over dinner and talk about them. And so he gets the idea, Daniel Leeds gets the idea that he wants to bring the philosophy of the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution to the jerseys and remember you know today when people think of new jersey they think of bruce springsteen they think of the sopranos they think of you know oil refineries and the turnpike and these these big you know dark cities like newark and and camden and trenton but at the time this story is going on west jersey 
is the edge of the empire. I mean, it's practically the moon. Uh, we have this relatively small range of mountains here in New Jersey called the Wachung Mountains. And it's kind of like a spine that runs through part of the state. And at the time, it was extremely difficult to get past. And so people really had almost no idea what's just on the other side of these mountains. So there was this strip of, you know, vaguely sort of civilization uh, and then this, this this bit of a natural barrier, and then God knows what's on the other side, west of this. Uh, they had no idea, the, the, most people had no idea the Mississippi River was out there, or even the Ohio River. Uh, and so it, this was the edge of civilization for the Anglo-speaking world. And so he wants to bring science and learning and history uh, and erudition to this you know, the Pine Barrens. Uh, and, you know, people tend to think of New Jersey as this very urban industrial landscape. And sort of North Jersey is exactly like the, you know, the the uh, the mythology. But the southern part of the state is very rural, uh, very bucolic, and still is. I mean, the, the reason it's called the Pine Barrens is because back, you know, millions of years ago, the Atlantic Ocean extended all the way in to what we now consider the Delaware River. Uh, that's where the shore, <laughs> the Jersey Shore was Pennsylvania, not New Jersey. Uh, and so uh, over the, over time, over vast amounts of time, the, the ocean receded and left this flat coastal plain <clears throat> where pine trees begin to grow. And so you have this really huge area of pine forest that even in the 21st century uh, is still fairly remote uh, the turnpike goes through it. The parkway goes through it. Uh, but, you you know, you have these little secondary roads. And I've been there. I, you know, I'm a city kid. I was born and raised in the Ironbound section of Newark. Uh, but the but the Pine Barrens, if you if you travel through there in the night, it's pretty intimidating. It's dark. You know, there aren't many streetlights around. The little the towns are kind of scattered. And you can drive for miles down, down secondary roads in the pitch black. Uh, and so it's easy to understand how people might begin to think they see things there. But anyway, so back to Daniel Leeds, he's got this idea uh, of, you know, of, of bringing intelligence and, and education, and he starts an almanac. The first almanac south of, uh, first successful almanac south of New York. Uh, and he thinks people are going to love it because Almanacs were very popular in, in Western Europe and even in North America and Boston and New York, almanacs were, were, were popular. And to his surprise, the Quaker fathers hate his almanac. They think it's got too much occult material in it. Uh, he, they think it's too irreverent. Uh, and they actually, the first issue comes out and they actually scoop up every copy they can find and burn them because they think his almanac is an abomination. He gets forced to go to the 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 the, the Quaker meeting with the what what most Christians would call a church, the Quakers call it a meeting, like as in meeting house. Uh, and he's got to stand up in public and apologize, you know, for writing an almanac. And so he doesn't particularly care for that. Uh, then he decides he's going to write a book. He writes a book called The Temple of Wisdom for the Little World, in which he sort of puts out his grand 
cosmic view uh, of the importance of science, the importance of history, the importance of astrology, uh, the importance of theology. You know, we, we tend to think today, when we think about astrology, we tend to think of astrology as a pseudoscience, which it is, uh, but uh, Christianity is often very anti-astrology because they think it's anti-God. But in the colonial period, many Christian theologians embraced astrology because for them, they thought that astrology was a way to understand the mechanics of the universe, the movement of the stars and the planets. And since God created the universe and the stars and the planets and the earth, then understanding the universe is a godly thing. Henceforth, astrology is therefore godly because it's helping you understand God's works. Uh, that was an idea that didn't exactly make it very far along the line, but in Daniel Leeds' day, there were philosophers, theologians, uh, Christian philosophers who, who embraced that, and Daniel Leeds was one of them. So he, was, he did not see himself as doing something occultish or satanic or any of that nonsense. He was trying to understand the workings of the universe which meant you could understand the workings of God. So his book is this attempt, a kind of holistic uh, uh, way of bringing together all these disparate parts into one kind of machine, which would allow you to understand God, get closer to God, and do all the things that in his understanding, Daniel Leeds' understanding, was what Christians were supposed to do. And the Quaker elders hate the book even more than they hate the, uh, almanac. the almanac. And so, and they burn copies of that too. In fact, the only reason we know he did this book is because there's one lone forlorn copy that survives that's in the Pennsylvania Historical Society in Philadelphia. Wow. If, if that one had gone, we would have, we would have had no idea that, that Leeds had published this book. Uh, and so not only is Daniel Leeds the first author in New Jersey in the, in the, in the, Atlantic, middle Atlantic states. He's also the first censored and suppressed author. Uh, so he's got that going for him. Uh, and he was kind of a free thinker, what kind of ahead of his time, at least for the colonies. He had inculcated Bacon's ideas, Jacob Bohm. So some of these thinkers that might have been a little bit too off over the edge or too edgy for them. And I think you wrote in your book, it was interesting, like people didn't want the printers or the printing press. Uh, in the colonies because they would spread dangerous ideas. Right, yes, yeah, yeah. Knowledge is power. Uh, unless you're, you know, a working person, then you're not supposed to have any knowledge or power. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. He brought over the ideas of Franken's, uh, Francis Bacon, Jakob Berm, uh, and, and um, uh, oh, his name just flew right out of my head. Uh, I had it. I mean, he put in a lot of stuff. He had... Yeah. But he also was kind of, uh, wasn't it Kelpius or Bacon? There were some of these other names that were around in that. Uh, sure. Thing. And he's also the first person uh, in print uh, south of New York to support the Copernican heliocentric view of the universe, the idea that the Earth goes around the sun, which was not widely accepted yet. Uh, you know, when, when his book comes out, it's around the same time that Isaac Newton's Principia comes out. You know, so so Leeds uh, is, is kind of in that world. He's in that milieu of bringing the what is then cutting edge ideas about how the cosmos works and where 
uh, uh, Isaac Newton gets hailed for it, uh, Daniel Leeds gets suppressed for it. So and, he's and he's also fighting too with some of these, uh, not only the Quakers, but I mean, I think that's where this legend comes out of. Can you, yeah, can you expand more on like his, yeah, his conflicts? He, he gets there's a point at which he says, you know, to hell with it. The, the Quakers hate what I'm doing. So I'm just going to go do it anyway. I'm going to I'm going to stop being a Quaker. And he starts writing anti-Quaker books. And this really interesting kind of tennis match begins where he writes an anti-Quaker book. And then Quaker apologists write an anti-Daniel Leeds book. And then he writes an anti-Quaker book. And they, they write an anti-Daniel Leeds book. And this goes back and forth for years. Uh, and in his almanac, he, he starts publishing the almanac again. Uh, more of a booklet size. The original almanac was a broadsheet, which is basically just one piece of paper. But now he's got the technology to print, uh, you know, sort of booklet style almanacs in which he's got a lot of blank pages that he is going to fill with all of his musings and his angry, uh, you know, uh, uh, ideas about Quakerism. And he also was a supporter of the British government. And this is important because this is at a time now, by now we're the early 1700s. This is at a time where the idea is just beginning to get talked about. The, the idea that maybe the British colonies could break away from the empire and form a new country. Uh, it's not really widespread just yet. It will be, you know, slowly it'll be, it, it'll take on more and more popularity. But this is at this period where the notion of independence uh, from the empire is, is just beginning to sort of get talked about. And for everything else, Leeds is also kind of pro-empire. So, you know, he's been accused of being an occultist. Now he's a pro-empire guy. And so the Quakers start using sort of rhetoric that we would recognize today. What do you do? You make the person look unpatriotic. Uh, you know, so he starts getting called unpatriotic. The Quakers call him uh, Satan's harbinger, uh, which which is a term I, I love. Which is the, the title of the book was almost Satan's harbinger, um, but you know, like today we we would see that as 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 almost an adorable expression. Uh, but in the early 1700s, that was a serious accusation to say someone worked for Satan, uh, and so now he's getting attached to these sort of occult notions, devil worship occult uh, notions. When, again, the reality is that he has no inch. He's, he's, a, he's a staunch Christian, believes in God, believes in Jesus, uh, you know, has no interest in Satan or anything like that. But it doesn't matter what he's doing. His enemies are spreading these kinds of lies. And so Leeds devil is a term that starts getting used. But it's a political term. It's a political animal. Uh, you know, you don't want to be to call someone leads devil is to call them unpatriotic, un-American, you know, pro whatever. Uh, and so that's how this thing starts to roll along. And he retires and his son, Titan, uh, who's named after the moon of Titan, which had only recently been discovered by Christian Huygens. Uh, again, this is leads is on the cutting edge of scientific discovery. Uh, and, you know, he's talking about it. He names his son after a moon of Jupiter. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's, that's where his head is. And so Titan takes over. Now Titan isn't 
as politically active as his dad, but he takes over just as a young man from Boston shows up in Philadelphia and he starts to publish an almanac as well. And of course, this is Benjamin Franklin uh, and Franklin starts uh, Poor Richard's Almanac. And when he does, Franklin knows that in that middle Atlantic state region, uh, by now, the most popular almanac is the Leeds Almanac. And so that's his competition. And so Franklin starts putting stories in his almanac about how Titan Leeds is, is uh, you know, an occultist, an alchemist, an astrologer. And at one point, Franklin says that uh, through the through the voice of poor Richard Saunders, uh, says that uh, Titan Leeds has died, and he's come back, and so he's a sorcerer. And this you know, is all. This is all a fight for. This is uh, all fight for uh, publishing. Fight for publishing power. Exactly. Know. Yeah. It has. It has nothing to do with the occult. Uh, you know, and Franklin. I mean, you got to love this guy. Uh, he's making these accusations with a straight face. You know, we 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 think of Ben Franklin as you know this jovial guy with the glasses and the long hair. You know, pinching women's bottoms and. You know, writing the writing the Declaration of Independence, but he had a side to him that could be a little on the nasty side when it came to making money. You know, if 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 making false accusations against Titan Leeds means more copies of Poor Richard's Almanac sell, he's gonna insult and make up stuff about uh, Titan Leeds. And you know, they didn't use this expression back then, but this is we begin to see the first uh, evidence of fake news in the American uh, historical project. And Titan Lee tries to defend himself and, you know, doesn't, he calls Franklin a liar and a scoundrel and Franklin keeps a straight face. And he says, well, I don't know who this person is who's insulting me, but it couldn't have been my friend Titan Leeds because he's dead, right. uh, you know? And so he's just pulling this stuff out of, you know, where, right. and it's working. But you it's know, like, a, it's almost fake news, but it's also like what you would call a beef today where it's fake, but it's generating interest and friction and people right, are which buying is the point. It. Right. Which is the point all along, uh, you know, controversy sells, uh, you know, the old, the old journalistic uh, saw uh, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, the more controversial, I mean, we've seen this today, you know, with stuff like ancient aliens and, you know, uh, mythical America and, you know, Jersey devil, Jersey, and the Jersey <laughs> devil, devil, you know, Templars devil. bringing the Ark of the Covenant to North, this is all nonsense, but it's promoted by in, in books and in TV because people, not because they think it actually is occurring, but because they know people will buy it and watch and all of that. So, you know, if, if you want to look for the origins of modern American, um, uh, you know, spectacular, sensational media, look to the story of the Jersey Devil. Right. And so... The Leeds Almanac dwindles, poor Richards becomes famous, and we go on through the 18th century into the 19th century, and in the Pine Barrens, there are these sort of local stories. The, the story almost goes extinct, uh, but in the 19th century, that's when this transformation from the political Leeds devil to an actual biological entity 
running around or flapping around the pine barrens begins to grow and that's where we see the origins of the legend of mother Leeds, uh who supposedly you know she she's a witch she lives in a rude hovel deep in the darkest recess, recesses of the Pine Barrens. It gives birth to a 13th child. Of course, it's got to be 13th or it wouldn't be any good. You know, you got to stick with the with the mythological the numbers, tropes. Right. It's, it, you know, no third child ever goes on a rampage. No 14th child ever goes on a rampage. It's always the 13th child. And so according to this story of Mother Leeds, um, the, the child comes out. Uh, grossly deformed with wings and, and hooves like a little horse and instead of running out the door it climbs into the chimney and out the chimney and spends the next several centuries accosting innocent passers-by uh, on various uh, you know highways and byways of the of the uh, pine barrens right and so the myth the myth lives on so people are seeing it people are I think I saw the Jersey Devil well, you know, so the term Jersey like Devil doesn't Frank exist yet. Okay. The term does Jersey Devil, it's still the Leeds Devil. Leeds this devil. will go sorry, all sorry. the way through the 19th century into the early 20th. Because, it, yeah. No, please continue. Okay. In Philadelphia, the story comes back to Philadelphia. There is an establishment, an amusement house called the 9th and Arch Street Dime Museum which was very popular. Dime museums were really popular in the late 19th or 20th centuries. Think of a kind of traveling circus sideshow, but in a building that doesn't move around. That was a dime museum. They call it a dime museum because it costs you 10 cents to get in. Uh, and 1905, 1909, the, the museum is actually kind of faltering a little bit. Uh, because, you know, just like today, sensationalism attracts people momentarily, but then you got to get a new sensation. Because if you don't, then people lose interest. And so what the Dime Museum was doing, which had been very, it's kind of falling off. And they see these stories about strange footprints in the snow around Mount Holly and Burlington and out, out to the Atlantic City. And they think, well, what? this might be something we could spin into something. And uh, some reporters go out and they're talking to people. Well, what did you see? What did you see? And a couple of people they talked to said something to the effect of, well, when I was a little kid, my great, great grandfather told me the story about the Leeds devil. And by now the political aspect of it had been forgotten. And now it's a monster. And when the, when the, Guys at the Dime Museum heard this. They thought, this is it. This is going to save us. We'll create the story about a monster, the Leeds Devil, running around. And we'll, you know, we'll make drawings and we'll. But then they said, well, Leeds Devil, the term Leeds Devil doesn't really sing. You know, it's got no pal. Uh, and so they sit, sit around and think about it. And then suddenly it hits them. Jersey Devil. And, you know, genius. And so they start saying, the, the museum says, the Jersey Devil's running around. It's 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 killing and eating people, and we have captured one, and it's going to be on display in the Dime Museum. And they actually had a Jersey Devil uh, on display, but obviously it's not a Jersey Devil because there is no such thing as a Jersey Devil. It's a kangaroo. They find a kangaroo. They get a kangaroo. They rent a kangaroo 
1909, Philadelphia. And they painted green and they put little fake wings on it and they put it in a cage, you know, on a dark stage. Uh, and they and they bring the rubes in, you know, a dozen at a time and the light comes on uh, and they got a kid, the little kid standing off in the corner with a long stick with a nail in it who stabs this poor kangaroo and causes the kangaroo to start jumping around. And, you know, people are affrighted and screaming. And they run out the door and then they bring in the next group of people and this thing starts over again. And this goes on for like two weeks and the dime museum starts making more money than they know what to do with. Uh, but eventually people began to question. They said, eh, I, I don't know if that looks like a real, it looks like a kangaroo that somebody dumped green paint on. Uh, and so the, you know, the jig is up uh, and the, the, the dime museum guys come out and say, look, yeah, we, we, we fake this. And at one point someone says, well, why did you do this? And they were like, what do you mean? We're a dime museum. That's what we do. We fake stuff. Why would you even think this was real? Uh, and so the genie's out of the bottle, but people start claiming they actually see this thing in the woods. And that's really where the modern version of the Jersey Devil, Jersey Devil story begins, because all that political stuff, um, you know, colonial America and the Quakers and book publishing and all that, that all gets forgotten because that's not as sexy as a kind of emaciated horse with wings running around the pine barrens attacking people. Right. And so that's how we get the story as we know it today. And that's it. And I mean, it's entered into kind of the cryptozoology mythology. People tell stories about seeing it. I think you mentioned that X-Files had a section. Sure. Had one. So it really is part of kind of like the uh, Americana. It's really, yeah, really fascinating book. I loved reading this book. Really nice. interesting. So uh, where's, I mean, we're kind of at 37 minutes, right about 40 minutes. I mean, there's a lot more information in the book. I'd really recommend people go check out The Secret History of the Jersey Devil. It's very well written and really historically, you know, as a historical piece uh, of colonial America. Really, that section is fascinating. Do you have anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap it up? No, I think that's it. You can find it. It's in paperback now. You can find it on Amazon and, you know, other places. It's pretty easy to find. The, the paperback is, I think it's like $20 now, something like that. I mean, that's about the going rate for a book. Yeah. What, uh, for people who want to reach out to you, do you have social media? That, that Yeah, well, you can, if you just Google my name, you'll get my Kane University webpage. Uh, and that's, you can see the courses I teach. I teach courses on alchemy, on on book history, on the history of science and medicine and the history of, uh, of uh, pseudoscience and other things. And you can also read, I do lots of op-ed pieces, which are all there you can read. Uh, I just had one come out a couple of weeks ago on vaccination, the importance of vaccinations, for which I get tons of hate mail. And uh, there should be one coming up on Columbus uh, for Columbus Day. The, the book I'm working on right now, uh, tentatively titled Waiting for Columbus, is the history of all the various legends and myths about who, you know, quote unquote, really discovered America. Uh, so that'll right. be out next year from Paul Grave McMillan. Uh, and so, you know, I, I tend to write about, you know, weird stuff off at the fringes. But that's a good question. I mean, the presumption of us is that it was Columbus, right? That nobody had ever been here before. What do you, do you have a working title for that book? Yeah. Waiting for Columbus. Waiting for Columbus. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so you're, it's Brian Regal, R-E-G-A-L at Kane University. So people probably put that into Google 
you'll get the link to yeah, his you website. Find me, you can find my webpage very easily. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my my Twitter handle is at Tarbosaur, T-A-B-O-R, oh, no, T-A-R-B-O-S-A-U-R. Uh, and oh, uh, where I, you know, I, I get yelled at on there too. Well, we all get yelled at at different spots, so you're not alone. Really excellent book. Really enjoyed reading it. And a great interview. Thank you so much. Again, title of the book is The Secret History of the Jersey Devil, How Quakers, Hucksters, and Bren Benjamin Franklin Created a Monster by Brian Regal and Frank J. Esposito, published 2018. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on. All right. Take care.